0: Previously, on Bad Hops.
1: Last time, we were talking about Effa Manley, the first and only woman to date in the Baseball Hall of Fame. I highly suggest you listen to the first episode because there's a lot of great information about Effa's background, her beginnings, where she grew up, and how she came to meet Abe and get involved in the sport of baseball. Give it a listen. Effa Manley was the co-owner of the Newark Eagles, a Negro League team. She ran the team with her husband Abe, but she was really the business brains and the operational brains behind the team. And Effa was very dedicated to running a professional team and really was very much behind making sure that Negro Leagues were run like a tight ship, were run very professionally and run like a, a business. She encountered some obstacles along the way, not just because it was hard in general for the Negro Leagues to lease stadiums. It was hard for them to make money. It was hard for them to hold on to players because they would go back and forth looking for the the best possible bang for their buck, the players. But Effa was very dedicated to the sport. She was very dedicated to the Negro Leagues. And she also was very much a civil rights activist and also was very much pro-integration. While she was pro-integration, that didn't mean she was pro-having her team and her fellow owners' teams used as basically a minor league system for the major leagues without any compensation. Where we last left Effa, she had gotten a call from Branch Rickey, who had just become owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he wanted to meet with her, and that's where we're going to pick up
0: this is the bad hops podcast a baseball podcast where we discuss everything but the box score so if you want to know what don newcomb's whip was during his cy young winning season or the number of revolutions on an ayani sato curveball this is not the place but if you're ready to hear more about the first and only woman in the baseball hall of fame welcome we're your hosts i'm mark butler
1: And I'm Jackie Micucci.
0: And today we are donning our first stole for a stroll around Cooperstown. Welcome to Bad Hops. (music) Jackie, this is our first, second part of a two-part episode.
1: It is. I feel like we're doing one of those true crime podcasts because they're always like doing two parters. But thankfully, we're not talking about murder.
0: <laughs> is that a spoiler? Somebody died in this story, probably.
1: Well, everyone in the story is dead. So that. Oh, my God. There's that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Last episode, we talked about Effa Manley, as, as you've heard in the recap. Mm-hmm. And as everyone should do, go back and listen to episode one because it a whole lot more sense if you start from the start, but we're not gonna tell you how to live your life.
1: No, I mean, honestly, if you wanted to jump in in the middle, that's fine. You still will, will learn quite a bit about Effa, but it is nice to get a little bit of her, her early background because I think it puts things into perspective.
0: Yeah, so we really have been able to talk a lot more about women in baseball. We've been able to talk about uh, the Negro Leagues, black players, the segregation of baseball, and the integration of baseball. I was surprised how much that sort of weaved in and out of the very early story of baseball. But we are coming into a time where we are in a very much a segregated era. Last episode, we focused a lot on the 30s. And now you're taking us into the 40s.
1: We are going into the 40s now. Shall I dive in? Please do. Effa is about to speak to Branch Rickey, who was then the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers. He had just become the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Effa got a phone call from his secretary, not from Branch directly, but from his secretary, because God forbid Branch should pick up the phone himself and speak to her, inviting her to a press conference. She was hoping to get a one-on-one with him, but instead she was invited to attend And this is a direct quote from Effa, one of the strangest conferences I have attended in my life. So as I said, Effa is about to attend this this press conference, and she gets there. And there are 30 reporters from both black and white newspapers in attendance. Branch Rickey gets up, and he announces that he's lending his support to a new Negro League organization called the United States League. There are already now two Negro Leagues going on. There's the Negro American League and there's the National Negro League, which is the league that F's team, the Newark Eagles, was part of. But Branch Rickey, ever the businessman, he's like, hey, I'm starting my own league. Although he did state at the press conference, it is not my purpose to discuss colored players becoming members of our clubs in our present organized baseball leagues or white players becoming members of the proposed Colored Baseball League. His claim now for starting the, this new league was that both of the other Negro Leagues didn't qualify as professional leagues, mainly because the premise was that what, they weren't sanctioned by Major League Baseball.
0: Or created by Branch Rickey.
1: Or, exactly. And, and you'll see this is an ongoing theme with Branch Rickey. I mean, I learned a lot more about Branch Rickey than I probably needed to know. and. Yeah, he is a piece of work. Anyway, at the press conference, he also said, there are a number of color teams with more or less fixed identities throughout the country, and none of these is a member of any league, whatever, in the sense of a league in organized baseball. Basically, as I said, claiming that his new league was, of course, the legitimate league, and the other leagues were not. Very convenient for him. Obviously, by organized baseball, he meant MLB. So he was basically laying the groundwork for integration this was one of the things he was laying a blueprint he was laying out for integration but not because he was a human rights activist or had the best interest of people of color at heart he was the consummate businessman which we will see later on
0: this sounds very lawyered up this dance around the firewall of segregation of well we'll have this this league here but it won't necessarily have colored players going over the, to, the, to the white side or vice versa. Mm-hmm. It's just it just is what it is. You please look at Clause 17B, Section 2, and you'll see that this, these things cannot join. Pretty much. And it, it takes all the fun out of baseball. Another ongoing theme that we seem to be noticing over, over <laughs> history. There's <laughs> yeah. always some blowhard that wants to take the fun out of baseball.
1: Now, during this press conference, Effa asked Ricky, if you're so interested in Negro baseball as all this would lead us to believe, then why in the world didn't you contact our two present Negro leagues so that we might try to work out all this on a mutual basis? And what Effa was to find out was that, uh, allegedly, the head of the NAL said he wasn't interested, and the president of the NNL, Effa's League, hadn't responded. Basically, they pretty much thought that the, the the reason that they didn't respond or they weren't interested is they thought that the USL was doomed to fail. And they were correct. It did. There was a lack of access to stadiums, player talent, and interest from the fans because the fans knew the other leagues. There were a lot of stadium deals that were already in place for the other leagues. That league folded in 1946. But by that point, Ricky had a very self-motivated plan in place to integrate baseball. This was really kind of him trying different things to figure out how he was. I mean, we say integrate baseball, but really he wanted to get the best black players to play for his team. So potato, potato. Now, despite being criticized, Eva was constantly working to prove that the Negro Leagues were a respectable enterprise. They had professional teams and they had top-tier talent. In October of 1945, she got the chance to showcase the players in the leagues when she received an invitation from the Brooklyn Dodgers, who you will see this is ongoing, uh, to put together a group of Negro League All-Stars to face off against white players at Ebbets Field in a doubleheader. Essentially, this was a way for Ricky to, like, view the on-field product, see the merchandise before he was going to move forward with buying. Even though it was a showcase, it was supposed to show all his talent, there were ulterior motives in place.
0: There's nobility in here somewhere of integrating the sport, but it's uh,
1: a... But not for him. Seems very distasteful to me. It is. Look, it's great MLB got integrated, but it was really a kind of a disgusting, dirty path how how it happened. And, you know, we're shown like Jackie Robinson in his uniform, ever the noble player. But God, there was so much so much dirty tricks going on behind the scenes to get to that point. It was actually not uncommon for black teams to play white teams during the the period of time, but normally the white teams were made up of semi-pros and not actual MLB players. Eva was able to persuade the Dodgers to extend the doubleheader into a five-game series. Then she went out starting to recruit players. Unfortunately, she wasn't able to recruit Satchel Paige because he was off doing his own barnstorming tour. Lots of barnstorming tours went on during that period of time to showcase players. So he was unavailable. But she was able to get catcher Roy Campanella, shortstop Frank Austin, and pitcher Johnny Wright, as well as two players from her team, future Hall of Fame outfielder Monty Urban, and future Cy Young Award winner Don Newcomb. It was a good group of players. Sadly, the pressure got to the black players. There was a lot of pressure on these guys to perform well, and they didn't win a single game. However, with the exception of one 10 to nothing drubbing, the games were close and very competitive and well played. But between Manly and the players on the field, they made silly mistakes, weird errors. It was a lot of pressure on them. However, Ricky, (laughs) during this series, he openly recruited Roy Campanella to play for the Dodgers. But Campanella turned him down because he figured he just wanted him to play for his Brown Dodgers team. That was the name of his Negro League team, the Brown Dodgers. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Just a few weeks after the series ended, Ricky announced he had signed Jackie Robinson shall we take a little break before we dive more into baseball integration? Let's do it. All right.
0: We'll be right back. Jackie, we're going to get back to the EFA story in just a minute. But in the last episode, I also gave a little bit of history about the formation of the Negro Leagues. And around the time that Effa and Abe, her husband, started becoming active in baseball was also a time when the formation of the Negro Leagues got a a lot more serious. I'm going to disagree with Branch Rickey. There was quite a bit of structure and and quite a bit of what you would expect from organized ball in the 1920s. It's funny, as I look at the formation of the Negro Leagues in the, the 20s and 30s, There are a lot of parallels to the early days of MLB, back when there was a a National League and an American Association. Some of the people running the teams and some of the people running those leagues hated each other and were always trying to undercut each other. And guess what's going to happen in an instance when one big player is trying to undercut another one? The whole thing can fall apart the first negro national league was formed in 1920 and it ran until 1931 but there was almost instantly a splinter group called the eastern colored league which ran from 1923 to 1928. now there's a guy called rube foster who we've been digging into and i think we're going to go back and talk about him in a future episode so there's a little little hint of things to come
1: yeah he's an interesting character he he warrants a a a deeper dive
0: character for sure and, and i think he was his own favorite character in his own story. Oh, for sure. The challenge with us telling the Rube Foster story is that we have to see if we can isolate any truth separate of embellishments. But he was a major player in organizing the Negro National League. In the 1920s, he went to Major League Baseball. And I have to throw this in because I like to say the name. Rube Foster talked to MLB Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis for help in uniting the splintered leagues, the, the Negro National League and the Eastern Colored League. I was surprised that someone like Kennesaw Mountain Landis would be interested in getting involved, but he did. And the factions found enough harmony that they started the first Colored World Series, which ran from 1924 to 1927. And so that was kind of a big deal when, when things came, came together. And remember, there wasn't always a World Series in Major League Baseball. It took quite a while to get the, the warring leagues to agree to play one another at the end of the season. The Eastern Colored League was falling apart, and then the Negro National League only hung on for three years after that. Before we get into kind of the final formation of the Negro Leagues, I want to provide a little counterbalance to the Branch Rickey story, because it's going to get worse before it gets better. <laughs> when Bradrick dies. <laughs> it
1: gets better.
0: <laughs> and I'm going to give props to the Yankees. And as our listeners know, that's a painful thing for me to do. But luckily, it's the Yankees from bygone days, which I'm, I'm always happy talking about
1: bygone days. Wow. Okay. So they get a pass as long as it's bygone days. Yes.
0: Okay. In 1930, July 5th, 1930, there was a massive doubleheader at Yankee Stadium. And I was really excited to... To learn more about this, I got a lot of this information from Lawrence Hogan, who I cited last time as the author of Shades of Glory, but he also wrote a New York Times article that talked about this game. At this doubleheader in 1930, the New York Lincoln Giants faced off against the Baltimore Black Sox. It was not the first time that black teams had played in major league stadiums. As we have found out, a lot of those teams were able to rent out stadiums on off days or on travel days for the for the home team and it was not so the, that was not uncommon, but they weren't charged rent for this game because Colonel Rupert, the owner of the Yankees at that time, and if you heard our episode about the Babe, you will remember quite a long digression about Colonel Rupert talking to Babe Ruth while eating a plate full of apples and cheese.
1: I mean, it always comes back to the babe, right?
0: Or apples and cheese, to be quite honest. To be
1: fair. uh,
0: I I like apples and cheese better than I like the movie The Babe, that's for sure.
1: And that's not even close, yeah.
0: But Colonel Rupert waived the rent on Yankee Stadium for this doubleheader, and it was a benefit for the brotherhood of sleeping car porters. It was a benefit for Black workers, Black Mm -hmm. union workers. None of this makes any sense to me because I always think of rich, white baseball owners being rich and white, which means that you don't really like people of color and you certainly don't like unions. Good for Colonel Rupert and good for the Yankees or good for the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters because they raised thousands of dollars to support the the union. The Lincolns, just if anyone's interested, the Lincoln Giants took the opener thanks to folks like John Henry Lloyd, who was a player manager played first base and managed the team at the age of 46.
1: Wow. And don't forget to listen to our player manager episode if you want to hear more.
0: That's right. It's all about the callbacks in this one.
1: But apparently. Yeah.
0: Now, Lehman Yokely got the complete game win for the black Sox in the finale. Thanks to a fellow named script Lee robbing New York of a home run. Oh, and I also want to point out that there were foot races between games. Oh yeah. This, this just sounds like a hoot. So I'm throwing it in there. None other than Bill Bojangles Robinson, the immortal tap dancer, Uh won a 100-yard dash running backwards.
1: Wow, running backwards. That's actually very impressive.
0: And we had a 25-yard head start.
1: Okay. Still, (laughs) still. still, Try running backwards sometime.
0: 20,000 people turned out for a big show uh, and a big doubleheader. Yes, segregated baseball. It was all black teams. I believe it was an integrated audience. But things as early as 1930, I feel like we're starting to see the shift towards integration. Now, 1932, the Negro Leagues had totally fallen apart. But a new Negro National League, as Jackie, as you mentioned, formed in 1933. And a Negro American League came together in 1937. Once again, we were able to see... This time it was called the Negro World Series, which launched in 1942, running through 1948, which takes us back to where we are in the EFA story.
1: Where we left in the EFA story, Jackie Robinson had just been announced as being signed to Branch Rickey's Brooklyn Dodgers, although he started with their, their Montreal Minor Leagues team. So that's where he, he started out. So this is where the poaching, really, of the Negro Leagues really starts to take off. Now, Effa was all for baseball being integrated, but she didn't want it to happen at the expense of the Negro League team owners, which is fair. She wanted them to be fairly compensated for the contracts they had with their players. Again, only fair. Integration was threatening to bankrupt the owners, and in November of 1945, Effa helped Composey the owner of the Homestead Grays and secretary of the Negro National League, write a letter on behalf of both the NL, the NNL and the Negro American League, condemning the way Branch Ricky went after Jackie Robinson and the way he was poaching black players. And they sent that letter to MLB's new commissioner, Happy Chandler.
0: Happy Chandler, everybody.
1: Do these commissioners just have to have like ridiculously amazing names is that i mean now it's a boring rob 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 manford
0: if he was known as robber manly fred
1: so much better so much better but yeah better names back then for commissioners so they sought out happy chandler But besides refusing to compensate the owners, Ricky was basically, he was bypassing the team executives and speaking directly to the players about joining his team. So it was like they didn't even exist. They brought that up to Happy Chandler, and they also invited him to attend an upcoming NNL meeting as well. But he didn't attend the meeting. However, he did end up meeting with the presidents of the two major leagues and the two Negro Leagues in January of 1945. And he proposed at that time that the Negro Leagues could become an officially sanctioned part of MLB. But first, they had to do three things. Adopt a constitution similar to the one that governed Major League Baseball. Implement ironclad player contracts that would prevent contract jumping and poaching. And three, build their own stadiums to decrease the power of third-party booking agents and the fees being paid to them.
0: That's surprising. I thought there were a couple other things that were probably insinuated in this contract. The the one of the things would be to waive all rights to all intellectual property. It now becomes the completely expressed Major- <laughs>
1: Express <laughs> consent of right?
0: That's right. <laughs> and then, of course, the final clause. And it's this is usually right before the signature page. Abandon mm-hmm. all hope.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Well, now Eva had been urging the owners for years to get their house in order. She wanted things to be run professionally. She wanted these ironclad contracts. She wanted, you know, things to be done the way you would run a business. And while the first two items on that list were easily adopted, that's the third one, right? That stands out. Buy your own have your own stadium built. You know, building stadiums is both expensive and time-consuming. It's like, sure just build a stadium, no problem, you guys. So in the meantime, Branch Rickey is poaching more black players. He went after pitcher Johnny Wright and Roy Campanella finally convinced him he didn't want him for the Brown Dodgers, but for the Brooklyn Dodgers. But then he went after a player on F's own Newark Eagles, Don Newcomb, who we mentioned in the, the opener. Like the other Negro League team owners before her, she did not seek legal action against Ricky. Her attorney advised her to write a letter to Ricky and request a meeting about Newcomb's signing. And of course, Ricky never responded. Effa said, I think we look very stupid to sit tight and not open our mouth with the stuff he is pulling. But Effa still had a team to run, but she still had an on-field product you <laughs> to take care of, sorry.
0: I'm going to give you a pass on that. We were joking about because Major League Baseball seems to now refer to the game as on-field product. But Effa definitely had a businesswoman's mindset, and so she was trying to maximize the potential of her on-field product.
1: She was. And she and Abe had had their sights from since they, they owned the team on winning the Negro League World Series. During the 1946 season, the Newark Eagles, after 12 years in the league, finally won the pennant with a 50-20 and 20 record. Their prize was meeting Satchel Paige and his Kansas City Monarchs in that World Series. Ouch. Yeah. It was actually quite an exciting World Series. It went back and forth. It went to seven games. And finally, the Eagles won the final game, which was also a nail-biter. They beat the monarchs three to two and they were finally crowned champions. It was an incredible season for the Eagles, not just because they won the series, but also because it was their best season for attendance and revenue. Now, Eva was buoyed by by this. She was excited for the 1947 season. And the Eagles Uh-oh. kicked it. Yeah, I know, right? Like, you can, can, can you feel like, boom, boom, boom. This
0: is where someone's calling from inside the house.
1: I mean, seriously. Get was... out,
0: Effa. Get
1: out. <laughs> and she does, she does eventually. But so in 1947, it began, It the season began great for the Eagles. They um, hosted a preseason exhibition across the South. The Manleys were making money, tickets were selling. But then as the regular baseball season progressed, crowds began to dwindle, especially on the East Coast, because Jackie Robinson had broken the color barrier in baseball and was playing now for the Brooklyn Dodgers. The Eagles lost $22,000 that year, and that's about $326,000. Sorry, I can speak. It's a lot of money, $326,000 in today's money. And attendance started to plummet, and it plummet not just for the Eagles, but for all the Negro League teams, especially in the Eastern Seaboard. And then the following season was even worse. The Eagles lost $25,000. And then the Malleys decided, it's time. We need to pull the plug on the team. And this is where we'll take a little break and we'll wrap up Effa Manley's storied career in Negro League Baseball. 1947
0: really was the best of times and the worst of times. I'm ecstatic that baseball broke the color barrier in 1947 and the game became integrated. I think that's super important, but the cost of doing that was Really painful because I, I think the Negro Leagues were a very vibrant set of teams, group of players, making amazing things happen on the field. I love hearing the stories. I would give anything to be able to watch some of these games somehow. But yeah, 1947, Jackie Robinson. I, I looked this up because I didn't know how many people uh, broke the color barrier in 1947. There was only five guys. I was a little surprised by that. Jackie Robinson, Larry Doby, Hank Thompson, Willard Brown, and Dan Bankhead all joined MLB teams. The Negro Leagues continued on through the 50s, but they were fading very, very quickly. As you mentioned, Effa and Abe saw the writing on the wall not more than two years after Jackie Robinson joined the Dodgers. The Negro National League folded in 1948, and by the time the Red Sox, which was the final holdout they signed Pumpsey Green, a name I'd never heard before, but I <laughs> love the name Pumpsy Green. When the Red Sox signed him in 1959, the Negro American League was also near the end of the road. Largely, it was an organization of barnstorming teams at that point. Now, one little thing that I found out that I was tickled by and very pleased by, every Major League Baseball expansion team that formed since 1961 has been fully integrated from the start. So there were no foot draggers like the Red Sox waiting 12 years between Jackie Robinson and Pumpsy Green. (laughs) 70 plus years of progress in the game. And there's still a lot more that can be done. But for people like Effa and Abe, I think it had to have been a bittersweet moment of progress.
1: So yeah, Effa and Abe saw the, the writing on the wall and they decided to call it quits and sell the club. Wendell Smith, who was a writer for the Pittsburgh Courier, a very famous Black baseball writer and sports writer in general, he wrote this about Effa Manley leaving baseball. Effa Manley, the butatious boss of the Newark Eagles, is divorcing baseball because of mental cruelty and indignities. There are many of us, however, who will miss the Queen of Newark because despite the fact that she tried to tell us how and what to write, she was always good copy. Despite her righteous threats and growling when things didn't go her way, Mrs. Manley was every inch a fine, dignified lady and extremely emotional. Oh, the misogyny. <laughs> that was mine. That was my little love. But yeah, I mean, seriously, come on.
0: If you'd left her name out and told me it was a, a blind item on page six of the New York Post, I would have believed seriously. it. What beautatious bosses divorced baseball?
1: I mean, it does sound like that. I mean that there was more to it and it is filled with like that colorful language, but wow, is that condescending? Cond- I like really would you would you have written it if it had just been Abe? Would that have been your your quotes right there? But it, it but it does what it does show is how involved Effa was in her, her team and the Negro Leagues so that she was not just, oh, I co own this with my husband and I sit up in the, you know, the owner's box or what have you. She was very much involved and very in the face of the owners and the press when it came to her team in the league.
0: As I learned when we were doing our Women in Baseball episode, let's call back to every episode, shall we?
1: Sure. That's what this episode is about, calling back to our long-storied podcasting career.
0: Exactly. Don't get a weird injury from doing too many callbacks.
1: That's right.
0: But when I learned about Helene Hathaway Britton, the first Mm -hmm. female owner in baseball, the saint louis newspapers just hated her and would take any chance they could to get a dig in at her we expect misogyny in sports we expect racism in sports especially in the, these early days although we see plenty of it now but holy smack rolls you see this stuff from 1948 it was not pretty
1: no it was not pretty and honestly some of these boys would write the same thing if they were allowed to today some of some of them not all of them i mean i think it's you know definitely attitudes have changed quite a bit but not enough so anyway the manley's agreed to sell the eagles assets for $15,000 to two memphis businessmen who are going to move the team to houston because the west and the south still the teams weren't quite as integrated. You know, East Coast was Jackie Robinson country at that point. So there was still interest as as you've you know, given some history. So they, they the Negro Leagues did continue beyond when baseball started to get integrated. The Manlies were smart. There was a, a stipulation to the deal that if any MLB team purchased the contracts of an Eagles players, the new owners would have to split the deal with the Manlies. So who should swoop in? To try and poach Eagles player Monty Irvin, but our old pal Branch Ricky. Good old cool
0: Branch tricky Ricky.
1: Effa wrote in her memoir, Abe and I came to the conclusion that the time had arrived when we could no longer go along with Ricky's obvious attitude of playing our Negro baseball business interests so cheaply. They were done. They were tired. Like they were leaving the sport, and they this was some of the some of the reasons why they had to leave was because of this. It was it was bittersweet. So the Manleys hired an attorney who reached out to Ricky with evidence that Monty Irvin had a contract and they were he was bound to the Eagles. But of course, Ricky, instead of paying the Manleys, he decided he would release Irvin instead because you know why would he ever pay it fair? price for something he was, could take for nothing.
0: And why not do business by spite instead of practicality?
1: Exactly. But if it wasn't done, and even as the court of public opinion was claiming that she was preventing Irvin from going to the majors, living out his dreams, she decided she was going to reach out to the other two teams in New York, the Yankees and the Giants, and shop him and get something back. Effa's final deal in professional baseball was arranging the sale of Monte Irvin's contract to the New York Giants for five thousand dollars. After attorneys' fees and splitting it with the new owners, the Malleys took home one thousand two hundred and fifty dollars for a future Hall of Famer. By the way, <laughs> but you know the money was some vindication because thanks to. Effa's efforts, many of the Negro League owners were now able to demand payment for their player contracts. And what do you think Effa did with that money?
0: I'm going to guess that she did something outside of Ebbets Field.
1: (laughs) She did. She did. She bought herself a mink cape. She talked to Abe and he's like, you know what? You've earned it. She bought herself a mink cape and she kept it until she died. And she said, It serves to remind me of yet another bit of baseball history in which I have been privileged to play a small role. And that is the baseball career of the first and only woman in the Hall of Fame, Effa Manley, owner of the Newark Eagles.
0: I just want to point out that it's June of 2022. For anyone going back to the archives, because I think there'll be a, some more women in the Hall of Fame sooner than later, but it's going to take a little time.
1: It is. And as I said, the Baseball Hall of Fame, and you go on their site, refers to her as the first woman in the Baseball Hall of Fame. So they, too... I think are very much open to having more women in the baseball hall of fame. And I think as to speak again, let's, let's throw it back to another one of our episodes, our women in baseball episode. There are a lot of contenders that we talk about in that episode that may end up here. It may end up in the halls of Cooperstown at some point.
0: Agreed. This was amazing. This was a person that cared about her team, her community, her players and cared about making progress in society. So all of those things I would have voted for, but I haven't gotten a Hall of Fame ballot yet.
1: Not yet. Maybe we will at one point. Yeah. Uh, Let me cite my sources before uh, I forget. Please do. They include the Baseball Hall of Fame website, the Negro Leagues Hall of Fame website, our old friend Wikipedia, Effa Manley's own memoir. But mainly my big one is this book, which I'm holding up that you can't see because this is an audio podcast. It is. Baseball's Leading Lady, Effa Manley and the Rise and Fall of the Negro Leagues by Andrea Williams. It is actually a YA book. I think it's really for young adults. But there was so much information in this book, not just about Effa Manley, but the Negro Leagues in general, and some of the players within the Negro Leagues, not just the players, but the the business players as well, and their role, and how the the leagues were run, and how these, these people had to scramble for legitimacy, and get playing time, and stadium time. It's, it's a great book. I highly recommend it both for kids and adults who want to understand this period of time in baseball better. It's a great read. Got some pictures in it, too, so you can see what these folks look like. So go out and grab it. Andrea Williams' book about Effa Manley.
0: Awesome. I mentioned Lawrence Hogan in his book Shades of Glory. I also want to mention in putting my timeline together, the Center for Negro Leagues Baseball Research... C-N-L-B-R dot org has a wealth of information about the Negro Leagues, not just the big deal players that I think, and no disrespect because I can listen to Cool Papa Bell and Satchel Paige stories all day, but it's also very fascinating to really understand the mechanics of putting the league together. That thing that you mentioned in the contract, well, these teams, if they want to be part of a permanent league, they have to build their own stadiums. It's like, you know how hard it is just to put a team together.
1: Yeah, and I think the r- the reality is they knew by throwing that in there. They know that. I mean, the, these are businessmen. They knew that that stadium clause was basically going to make it that they couldn't join. They couldn't be part of MLB because they know how difficult it is to build stadiums and to uh, get, you know raise the money to build stadiums, to get permission to build stadiums. I mean, it's gotten. I mean, nowadays it's a whole whole bigger weirder thing that goes on, that was thrown in there to trip them up. I mean, that's the only reason, because that that was not going to be something that was going to be easy to do.
0: Probably chronologically, it's a little too late for this, but I sense some real mustache twirling <laughs> when with, with they devise that clause, they will never be able to sort this one out, will they?
1: <laughs> exactly. Like, ha, 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 And then we'll just throw this one in there and we'll see how that goes. <laughs>
0: Well, that was our first two-part episode. We'll see if we do it again sometime soon.
1: Well, I mean, Mark, the way you love to dive into things, I feel like actually it's funny that I'm the one doing the first two-part episode. I feel like this would have been your jam.
0: You know my secret, Jackie? I just keep talking.
1: Oh, that I know. That is not a secret.
0: I, I I don't pause for part two. The fans are heading home. The grounds crew is on the field, and we will see you next time at the ballpark. That's our pal Ron Lewis on the Stadium Organ. I'm Mark Butler.
1: And I'm Jackie Micucci.
0: And this was Bad Hops. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this podcast without the express written consent of Bad Hops is prohibited. Unless you like us, review us, or subscribe to Bad Hops. Find us at at Bad Hops Podcast on Instagram and everywhere else.
1: See you at Cooperstown.
0: And Kansas City.